to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. I'm free from bondage to performance-based acceptance. In other words, if I have a poor performance, I don't conclude that I am no longer accepted by God because I'm freed from that. That's not how my acceptance with God works. So I'm out from the bondage of that. I'm no longer living with that kind of anxiety. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Galatians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 16, in a message titled, Liberty and Love. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So today, we are picking up in verse 7. And we're once again looking at the subject of Christian liberty. And we've been looking at that topic much of the way through because that's one of the main issues that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. So so we're going to focus in on that today, but we want to look at verses 7 through 16, kind of walk through them, and then we're going to come back and zero in on verse 13. Here in our text, uh, he continues to personally challenge them. So remember, he's got a relationship with these people. He was the, the one that God used to found the churches there, many of them. And so he's speaking to them very candidly, speaking to them uh, on, a, on a very personal level. And in verse 7, as we pick up, he says, he says to them, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth. So, uh, of course, Paul's experience with them there, as we pointed out, and as he even uh, referred to in the early chapters, they started off quite well. It was a very promising situation. They had received the gospel of the grace of God, and they were experiencing this wonderful life transformation and the joy of their salvation and all of that. that that's how they started the race. They ran well. But then Paul says, who hindered you? And then he says in verse 8, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. And again, undoubtedly, they would have thought that, well, you know, we're, you know God is, is leading us now in this direction. Paul only gave us part of the picture. He only gave us half the information we needed. He told us about Jesus. He didn't tell us about the law. So they're probably assuming that these false teachers that had come, they were now speaking for God. God was telling them, you need to bring in this addition of the law. Paul says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. No, this isn't God that's leading you in this direction. They were actually being misled. And so verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so he refers to these, the influence of these teachers as leaven. Now, leaven, pretty consistently in Scripture, leaven is a representative of corruption, of, of sin. And so Paul sees their influence as, as a corrupting influence. And even though there, there was obviously just a, a small group of them, they were, they were having a tremendous influence, and it was affecting the entire 
church in Galatia. So he says, though, in verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. So, so Paul, he still holds out a confidence and a hope that the work that had begun among them was, was genuine and that this was, this was a phase that they would come out of, that they wouldn't uh, settle into this false teaching. And, and, and he expresses that here, as he would do in, in many of his epistles. You know, when you read through the letters in the New Testament, especially, we'll just talk about the ones that Paul wrote, you know, he wrote to these churches that were full of people, just like us, sinners, and uh, subsequently, these churches had problems. Uh, but Paul didn't see that as, a, as an indication that they weren't true believers. He saw it as an indication that they were immature and they just needed to be taught and challenged and they needed to continue to progress and grow. So he's always expressing his confidence in just kind of the idea, he that has begun a good work in you is going to complete it. He, he would express the confidence that God was going to finish what he started there. And he feels the same way about these Galatians despite the unfortunate situation at this point. And so, verse 11 is interesting, though, because as we look at verse 11, we see that the false teachers apparently had come to a place where they started to even suggest that Paul would agree with them. And so he says in verse 11, he says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So they were suggesting that Paul, that this, Paul really believes the same thing. Now, here we are today and we're hearing about the preaching of circumcision. And you might wonder what in the world would that sound like? What is the preaching of circumcision? Well, the preaching of circumcision is just, it's Paul's way of describing a message that tells a person that they can save themselves. That's what, that's what circumcision represented. It represented your ability, the human ability through works to save yourself. So to preach circumcision is to tell sinners that they can save themselves by their own good works to preach Christ crucified is to tell them they cannot and that only Christ can save them through the cross. And so they're suggesting that, you know, Paul's message is really the same as ours. He, he understands that you can, through your best efforts, you can uh, attain the uh, approval of God. John Stott, in his commentary, uh, mentioned just this whole mentality. He said, the message of circumcision is quite inoffensive, popular, because flattering. The message of Christ crucified is, however, offensive to human pride, unpopular because unflattering. So to preach circumcision is to avoid persecution. To preach Christ crucified is to invite it. People hate to be told that they can be saved only at the foot of the cross and they oppose the preacher who tells them so. If we preach the gospel, we shall arouse ridicule and opposition. Only if we preach circumcision and 
preach circumcision, the merits and sufficiency of man shall we escape persecution and become popular. So what was true in Paul's day is true today as well. You might wonder, I mean, you know, how is it that in uh, today, right today, in our culture presently, how is it that there is, in, coming from certain places, there's such a disdain for the gospel? You know, when you think about the gospel being the good news, when you think about God loving us, you think about Christ dying for us, I mean, all of that sounds really good. And you would think that people would, would welcome something like that. But the disdain still to this very day for the message of the gospel is that you cannot save yourself. You have nothing that you can contribute to your salvation. You, your case is so bad, you are so hopelessly lost, somebody else has to save you. That's the rub. That's what people do not want to hear. And that is true today, just like it was back in Paul's day. So Paul refutes the, the false claim that he himself would preach circumcision. But you, you wonder how they would even come up with a suggestion like that. And, and Paul says here, he says, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision. Now, when would Paul have preached circumcision? He would have preached this before he was a believer because as a Jewish rabbi, as a Pharisee, he believed that you were saved through adherence to the law. But there was no time in his apostolic ministry where he ever preached circumcision. But on one occasion, we know that Paul took Timothy, before he went on a missionary journey, he took Timothy, whose mother was Jewish and father was Greek, he took Timothy and he had him circumcised. Not because he thought that was saving Timothy. He did it because he wanted to be culturally sensitive, and he knew that if he brought Timothy with him to minister to Jews, this would have been somewhat of a stumbling block. So, so maybe they used that as their point of reference to say that Paul was preaching circumcision. But what Paul says here in verse 11 is, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? then the offense of the cross has ceased. He's saying, look, if I was preaching circumcision, I would not be being persecuted. So you can know that I'm not preaching circumcision by the fact that I'm being persecuted. You don't get persecuted for preaching circumcision. Nobody today is going to get persecuted for standing up and saying, hey, just be a good person. Just be the best person you can. Or even, hey, join this religion and you just do your best to you know, follow the rules and, and that's good. Nobody's going to persecute you for that. But people are going to persecute those who say, well, actually, no, there, there's only one way to salvation, and that's through Christ. And it's through what Christ did because we can't save ourselves. That, again, as I said, is still the rub today. So Paul, he is correcting the, the misinformation there. But, but back at the, the second part of verse 10, and, and verse 12 together. Notice what he says in the latter part of verse 10. He says, regarding those uh, who were troubling them, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And then look at verse 12. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. This is a pretty radical statement by Paul. He, what he's saying here is these guys that are emphasizing circumcision, he says, I wish they'd just go all the way and castrate themselves. 
That's, that's pretty hardcore. But we, what we need to understand here is this, this is a righteous indignation against an attempt to destroy the faith of, of these believers. So Paul is looking at this from the standpoint of, of these false teachers are really the agents of the devil, and they're seeking to destroy the faith of these young believers. And, and Paul is looking at them as candidates for judgment. And rightfully so, because Jesus said that for those who would lead astray, the little ones who believe in him, remember Jesus said it would be better if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were cast into the depth of the sea. God has no sympathy for those who would turn people away from the truth. And you guys know that we, you know, we're living in a culture that is becoming increasingly soft on everything. So, you know, the idea that that somebody would come out and say something as forceful as, you know, there's going to be a judgment on, on even false teachers. Even people in the church today just sort of, you know, withdraw from that. Oh, wait, you know, well, we don't, want to, we don't want to go that far. We don't want to say that. But Jesus said it, and Paul is echoing it right here. There, there is nothing more serious from God's point of view than people being led astray from the truth, from his truth. And so there is a place to stand up and, and let the, the false prophet, the false voice know that there is a judgment that awaits. And that's, that's what Paul is communicating here. So, you know, it's, it's contrary to the, generally speaking, kind of the tone in the culture, at least from some, but it's not contrary to the biblical uh, picture of how God feels about things. I was trying to think of a, like a parallel, sort of a modern parallel. We don't have anybody for the most part, you know, we don't have people today in churches who are gravitating back toward Judaism and wanting to add, you know, the, the keeping of the law to their salvation. It's a different cultural context, but I was thinking this is similar to what we might see where somebody seemingly comes to faith, but then like, say, for example, a cult comes along and, and then seeks to lead them astray. So they put their simple faith and trust in Christ. And then, you know, someone comes and knocks on their door and says, oh, no, no, you're believing in Jesus isn't, that's not enough. You need to join our organization or you need to become part of this, whether it's a cult or whether it's a false religion. It's in our context, that's what, what it would look like. So, moving on to verses 13 through 16 real quickly. And then, like I said, we'll come back to verse 13. But Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so now Paul is coming back once again to remind them of the fact that we have been called to liberty. And he says that this liberty has freed us to, to love, to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And, and then he, he ends up telling us ultimately that all of this happens through the power of the Spirit. So walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we'll come back to that um, in our next teaching. That's what we're going to focus on. But I want to focus today on the subject of liberty once again, and also the subject of love. And so Paul says that we are called to liberty. Now, of course, we've been talking a lot about liberty. He has been trying to bring them back to that, to that place of, of their freedom in Christ and so here he's once again telling them like he did in the first verse of, of chapter five. Remember, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. So now again, he says, we've been called to liberty, but do not use this liberty as a cloak for the flesh or as, a, as an occasion for the flesh. So let me just remind you of, of the call to liberty. What, what is he talking about? Let me just sum it up in four points. Remember, number one, we've been, we've been freed from the condemnation of the law. So that's where our liberty begins. We're freed from the condemnation of the law. I'm no longer bound up with an obligation to the law in order to please God. Now I'm, I'm freed from that. I understand that that is not the means by which I come into a right relationship with God. So I'm free from the condemnation of the law. And secondly, similarly, I'm free from bondage to performance-based acceptance. So this, I'm, I'm freed from this. Now, I don't, I don't uh, understand my acceptance with God based on my performance. In other words, if I, if I have a, a poor performance, I don't conclude that I am no longer accepted by God because I'm, I'm freed from that. That's not how my acceptance with God works. So I'm out from the bondage of that. I'm no longer living with that kind of anxiety. And this is what people live with. They live with the, the anxiety of whether or not they're accepted by God, and it always goes back to performance. So if I seem to be performing well, then I have a great confidence that I'm accepted by God, and I can expect God's smile to be, you know, given to me. I can expect his blessing and his favor because, you know, I'm just, I'm doing well. But if you think about it, if, if I'm thinking that way, I'm in a performance-based acceptance mode. And so... Conversely, if I am not performing well, then my expectation is very low for God's mercy or for his blessing or for any of those kinds of things, because after all, why would God want to bless me? I'm such a loser. But we've been set free from all that. That's what Paul is talking about. We are free and at rest in God's unfailing love. That's the third thing. So we're freed from that kind of bondage, and now we're at rest in God's unfailing love. God loves me not just when I'm performing well, but he even loves me when I'm not performing well. His love for me doesn't change. Just like a parent loves their child regardless of their performance, you love your child when they're good. You love them when they're bad. You love them when they're in between. You love your child. And so God loves us 
with an unfailing love. And so we're, we're free in that. We, we're free because we realize that it, God's love does not fluctuate with my ability to perform. And then fourthly, we are free to enjoy life in our Father's world. So we're free to enjoy life. Paul writes to Timothy at a certain point, and he says that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. And, and so we're freed from those kinds of things that religion so often brings along as restrictions. And, and Paul puts it this way in writing to the Colossians. He, he describes it like, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And, and this is what religion does. It, it puts a limit on all of you know, the, these kinds of things in life and tells you, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. You can't enjoy that. You can't experience that. You can't touch that. You can't taste that. You can't handle that. And we've been set free from that. And what a wonderful thing it is to be set free from that. Because so oftentimes, even as Christians, we can fall into the trap of thinking that, well, a good Christian just, you know, certainly can't enjoy life because all of life is sinful and we just can't be involved in anything. And we withdraw from society or we just you know, are, are constantly critical of people who seem to be enjoying themselves in any way. And then we kind of develop a reputation as, uh, you know, Christians are just against everything. People ask, are you guys for anything or are you just against everything? And sometimes it's understandable that people ask that because that's, that's the impression that we give. That's the, that's kind of the vibe that we put off. But but that shouldn't be the case because we're free to enjoy life. Not everything in life is sinful. And so we have to recognize that. You know, there are many things in culture. There's art and there's entertainment and there's, you know, there, there's music and there's just, the, you know, the, the enjoyable things of life. Some Christians think that all of that is taboo. That's all off limits. No, we can't engage in any of that. Well, look, the thing that God doesn't want us engaging in is sin. But let's not make up sinful stuff. Let's let God tell us what sin is and what it's not. We don't, we don't need to add to the list of sin. God's done a perfect job in laying that out for us. So, so we have freedom. This is the liberty that we have. We are free to enjoy life in our Father's world. It's God's world. And there are many wonderful things in God's world, even many wonderful things in culture, even many wonderful things that, that human beings, sinful human beings have developed. But because we're created in the image of God, there's still something in some of these things that can ultimately glorify God. So we're called to liberty. For the month of May, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Sickness, disease, broken homes, poverty, people young and old all around the world are experiencing distress. Have you ever wondered how a loving God could allow so much suffering in the lives of people he claims to love? Well, in her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin tackles this question and 11 others about Christianity. If you've ever wrestled with questions about Christianity or want to be prepared for those who are, we encourage you to call us right now. 
at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. To order Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Galatians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. Hi, this is Cheryl and Brian Broderson. And we wanted to tell you that we're going to Israel in October 2022. And we want you there with us. Yeah, the dates are October 23rd through November 4th. And this is going to be a tremendous trip. Cheryl, what's your favorite thing about Israel? I love the Galilee, but Brian... You and I both know there's so much because we love watching the Bible come alive, whether you're at Tel Aviv or you're at Jerusalem or Caesarea. Yep. Or Mount Mount Carmel. Carmel. Yes. We are so excited about this Israel trip because we absolutely love going to Israel. So we'd love to have you join us October 23rd through November 4th, 2022. And you can find more information at israel.cccm.com. We'd love to have you join us.